0: Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I'm your host. And for now, I'm alone in the studio, but I'm here today to talk about a couple of interviews that I worked on. Um, So Melissa Johnson at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, she wrote a paper called Laying the Foundation, a Wealth Building Agenda for Georgia Women. Um, And this was really about attacking the issue of the wealth gap between women and men in Georgia, and her, her paper proposes solutions in, in three different areas. So it's, it's kind of a comprehensive look at how to address the disparity of wealth between men and women in Georgia. She proposes solutions around caregiving and paid family leave, around home ownership, and around entrepreneurship. Um, so I invited her on the show today to talk about her paper and to kind of get a really deep dive into this issue of wealth disparities between men and women in Georgia. Um, And then for our second interview today, I was also joined by Stacey Abrams. She's a candidate for governor, the former minority leader of the Democrats in the Georgia House of Representatives. Um, But I was interested in her insights on this topic because she is somebody who has spent much of her career at the intersection of business and politics. Um, She's somebody who started some of her own businesses, who's had some of her own businesses fail because of some of the structural issues that we talk about in terms of access to capital, having the resources that you need to start a business. Um, and, And she really gets to what is one third of Johnson's paper, which is this issue of entrepreneurship among women and policies that the state can consider to increase entrepreneurship among women. So I was really interested in the insights of both Melissa Johnson and Stacey Abrams. So on today's show, you're going to hear from both of them. Um, so we're going to start with my conversation with Melissa, and then you'll hear from Stacey second. Um, so here are Melissa and I talking about her new paper. All right. So I'm now joined by Melissa Johnson, a senior policy analyst at the Georgia Budget and Policy, policy Institute. Uh, we're talking about her paper today. It's called Laying the Foundation, a Wealth Building Agenda for Georgia Women. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for joining the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, so I was hoping you could just start us off with a little bit of background on this issue of wealth um, and the disparity between men and women of different backgrounds. I think people are familiar with the idea of the gender wage gap, um, but I'm not sure people are so familiar with the idea of of a disparity in wealth. So could you just talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. So as you said, there is a, a gender wage gap, and it's significant in Georgia. And we talked about that a little bit last year with our Women's Economic Opportunity Agenda, but this year we wanted to focus on the gender wealth gap because that is more significant to women's long-term economic security. And the gender wealth gap, specifically in Georgia, we look at the typical household headed by a single woman in Georgia. It has about $10,450 in wealth. And that's only half of the net wealth of households headed by women nationally, and only about 42% of the wealth of households headed by single men in Georgia. So that's a significant wealth Yes. Yeah. And that gender wealth gap is even starker when we look at, at women of color. Uh, national data indicates that women of color have only a fraction of the wealth that uh, white women have. So in this report, we talk about three three policy solutions and paid family leave and in, in home ownership and then in entrepreneurship to help close that wealth gap.
0: Um, and so could you just lay out for us the most important findings and policy recommendations from your paper?
1: Sure. So we talk about um, paid family leave specifically as as one of the solutions because women take on a disproportionate share of, of caregiving responsibility. So a recommendation here is to establish paid family and medical leave at the local and the state levels. Um, and that helps prevent women and their families from having to burn through their savings. So it helps preserve wealth. And then our our recommendation around home ownership is state, and local housing trust funds. And housing trust funds, uh, they've been used across the nation to help people become home- homeowners and build wealth in that way, and then also to help them preserve wealth by preserving their home ownership. For entrepreneurship, we know that women are growing businesses, establishing businesses, and growing businesses in Georgia uh, at a very rapid pace. But we also know that women have, when they establish businesses in Georgia, they're, they have lower revenues than businesses owned by men. Our recommendation here is around boosting women's entrepreneurship through contracting goals. Uh, the state setting those contracting goals, and then some targeted technical assistance for immigrant women specifically because immigrants are um, more likely than Native-born Americans to um, establish businesses. So those are just some of the findings and some of the recommendations from the report.
0: Um, So in that first area of paid family leave, your paper notes that a disproportionate responsibility in the area of caregiving um, lands on women and is a drain on women's wealth. Could you just talk a little bit about why that is?
1: Sure. And, And a lot of it has to go back to, you know, traditional kind of gender roles, right? We know that women are more likely to have to step out of the workforce to take care of their families. Um, part of that is because women need to carry children, but also it, it goes to women being seen as caregivers generally. So women are uh, caring for older people in their family, and um, people with disabilities um, more often than men are. Um, Women who are between the ages of 25 and 54 who are not in the workforce, they cite home responsibilities as their top reason for not working. And they cite that reason 12 times. They're 12 times more likely to cite that reason than men are. So we're talking about like drastic disparities in terms of, of caregiving.
0: Can you also talk a little bit about housing trust funds? Um, your paper notes that, that these would be a good policy tool in terms of increasing home ownership rates among women. Um, can you talk about these programs and, and have they been used in other places and have they been effective where they've been used?
1: Sure. So... We bring up housing trust funds because it's, it, had, it is a tool that's been used by states and by localities across the nation, and we're all about bringing evidence-based policy right to Georgia. There are nearly 800 housing trust funds in cities, counties, and states across the nation, and they generate um, more than a billion dollars a year for affordable housing. And they can support activities that directly contribute to wealth building. So just three quick examples, right? So housing trust funds can offer down payment assistance that helps people to become homeowners. Um, Savannah's housing trust fund does this. Um, it helps moderate income employees of one of the health systems down there to become employees. To become homeowners through their housing trust fund. Two, another way that housing trust funds can help with um, homeownership is to help people repair their homes, to help people preserve that homeownership. Tennessee, for example, they have this, uh, they ha- have actually two repair programs. Um, one is an emergency repair program that helps elderly homeowners, people with disabilities. They helped approximately 2,000 households um, in the last year that I could find data. And they help them repair their homes. So that's something that's been working to help people keep their homes. And then finally, um, housing trust funds, they can provide education and counseling. And this is especially important because it helps people to identify the right neighborhood to invest in. It can help people understand if home ownership is the right investment for them at that particular stage in their life. And it can help people um, keep their homes, right? Um, especially for fr- first time home buyers who may need some reminders of what the responsibilities are of home ownership. Um, Housing trust funds can help fund that that education and that ongoing counseling. So those are just three ways that housing trust funds have have been effective just in in the wealth building space uh, for helping people to become homeowners and then preserve that homeownership.
0: Um, and then the the last area of policy solutions that your paper talks about. Um, aims to increase entrepreneurship among women. And you note that entrepreneurship is the second only to homeownership as a way that Americans build wealth. And um, one of the things that, that you recommend is um, the stain- changing of state contracting and procurement practices and processes. Um, this may sound like a little bit of like inside baseball or a small kind of change uh, to people not familiar with this. So could you just talk about the impact of what – changing state contracting practices would be um, in this area?
1: Sure, so like I said before, we've Georgia has this remarkable growth in, in women-owned businesses, um, but these businesses have lower revenues than the firms owned by men. So one way to increase these revenues is to open up new markets for women-owned businesses. And this is how we get to establishing contracting goals, because this is a specific role that the state can play to open up a huge new market for women-owned businesses. Um, 14 states and D.C. have goals for either doing business with women or uh, people of color or people who are at the intersection of those Those two um, demographics. And the impact here would be significant. Um, We talk about in the paper how uh, Georgia does about $4.5 billion in business with vendors every year. So if you were to set a goal for about 22% of that business, just as an example, that would put $1 billion of business, of Georgia business, into the hands of firms owned by women, owned by people of color that may not be seeing that revenue currently. We don't get into specific goals in the paper. Um, We lift up Maryland as an example. They have a 29% goal We don't prescribe Georgia's specific goal, but like I said, I bring that example up just to say that that impact would be um, significant for a very modest goal. And then also in setting that goal, it's a way for for Georgia to evaluate as as it tracks its way to that goal, whether it's spending its money in an equitable way whether its vendors are lining up with the gender and the racial makeup of the state um, and whether the state is putting its, hands, putting its money in the hands of business owners who historically not had equal access to the market. And I think that's an important um, question for the state to ask itself.
0: Your paper notes that some of these strategies are already being pursued in Georgia. Um, I know we talked a little bit about the the housing trust funds in Savannah, um, but are are there other elements of this that are already in practice?
1: Sure, um, because we didn't talk about pay family leave and how that's that's one of the recommendations that we made. That's that's already building on the process already being made in Georgia in, in researching this. Paper. I think we were surprised to learn that there is at least six Georgia local governments that are already offering paid parental leave. And as we talked about before, this this is something that helps uh, women and their families preserve wealth. It's already underway in Georgia, and we just would like to see uh, that policy expanded throughout more localities in Georgia. And then on housing trust funds, just to touch on that quickly again, there's that Savannah housing trust fund. That's one of two two local housing trust funds. So we have Savannah and also Atlanta housing trust fund here. And then there's the state housing trust fund. Um, But, of course, the challenge is with... The state housing trust fund, its, it's size, um, we're only spending about $5 million through the state housing trust fund. Uh, when um, a similar size state, Ohio, for example, they're collecting four times that amount for their housing trust fund. Um, so that's where we have room to grow and room to improve. And then finally, with the local housing trust funds, yes, it's great that we have two local housing trust funds here, but the challenge here is that Georgia's Constitution restricts the revenue sources available to local housing trust funds. So for us to have even more local housing trust funds in more areas of Georgia, we recommend that the state pass um Enabling legislation that allows uh, cities and counties, if they would like to, to access more public revenue sources, so that they can dedicate those sources to affordable housing.
0: Um, and then, lastly, yeah, anytime we talk about these these policy proposals, um, we always want to ensure that they're they're going to have an impact on the people that are you know intended to be helped by them. Um, So could you just talk a little bit about broadly what the impact of implementing these policies in Georgia would be on on women and their families and and on the state's economy as a whole?
1: Sure. So I think to fully answer that question, we have to go back and, and think about the significance of women to Georgia's economy. So. We say at the outset of the paper that women are the majority of Georgia's adults, right? And women are bringing in at least 40% of earnings in more than half of Georgia households with children, right? So knowing those two facts, we know that our entire state economy is strengthened when women have more economic security, and wealth is a key way for women to have that economic security, right? Wealth provides for benefits, we talk about, and the entire state of Georgia can enjoy those benefits when women's wealth is boosted, given their significance to Georgia's economy. So, wealth is that reservoir of resources that families can tap during financial emergencies. So, when families have more wealth, they can recover from financial setbacks more quickly. And that helps all of Georgia, Georgia's economy, to be more stable when families are more economically stable. Wealth is that nest egg that can be leveraged for other investments, like starting a business, right? And we know that more new businesses lead to higher productivity, they lead to wage growth, better quality of life. So that's good for Georgia. And we know that wealth can be passed to future generations. When women have more wealth, especially when women are breadwinners in more than half of households with children, that's like a down payment on success for future Georgians. And then, finally, wealth is linked to better outcomes for children. Speaking of the future, we've seen that higher high school graduation rates, higher earnings, they're linked to higher wealth, um, specifically um, for households headed by single women. So, knowing this, knowing all of these benefits of wealth and knowing the significance of of women to Georgia's economy. We know that boosting women's wealth will strengthen not only women and their families, but also strengthens all of Georgia's economy.
0: And um anything else that I missed that, that we should note?
1: I think the only thing that we Um, touched on quickly, and I'll just go back to and and underscore a little bit, is we talked about the contracting goals as part of our entrepreneurship recommendation. Um, But the other part is uh, increasing that technical assistance for immigrant women entrepreneurs. And we know that Georgia offers technical assistance to small businesses, um, but we don't see um, any programs that offer targeted and customized support to immigrants. And we believe that this is important because Georgia's Latina-owned businesses are already growing at a faster rate than any other state. And 60% of Georgia's Latinas are immigrants. And as I said before, immigrants Start businesses at a rate higher than uh, Native Foreign Americans. So, we believe helping Latinos, helping immigrant women of all races navigate these um, complex systems of licensing, of permitting, of contracting, and all of those other areas that can help grow successful, growing businesses. And that's an investment that we believe will not only help women and their families once again but help the entire state
0: all well melissa johnson thank you so much for for joining us on the show today Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right. So thanks again to Melissa for coming on the show. Um, So now we'll turn it over to myself and Stacey Abrams talking about access to capital and business growth and small business development and some of her ideas as she uh, makes her case as to why she should be the next governor of Georgia. Um, just a couple of notes. Um, Apologies. Her audio does drop out a little bit in the middle. Um, So if it goes silent for a second, she'll be right back. Um, AT&T, get better signal here in Washington, DC. Um, But on that note, with that, we'll turn it over to myself and Stacey Abrams. All right, so I'm now joined by Stacey Abrams, a candidate for governor in Georgia and the former minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives. Uh, Leader Abrams, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so today we're talking about a paper written by Melissa Johnson at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute about a policy agenda that's meant to increase the wealth of women in Georgia. And you're somebody who's spent a lot of time at the intersection of business and politics throughout your career. Um, so just from a, from a business perspective, can you tell us a little bit about what your experience was like setting up your first business and, and what kind of promise does starting a business hold for people in Georgia?
2: My first company was a consulting firm, and I had as my first client the Atlanta Beltline Inc., which was incredibly helpful because it was a stable client, someone who I knew could actually afford my services, uh, in part because it was a quasi-governmental entity. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to think about access to government contracts for new businesses. Uh, my second business, I started with a business partner, and another woman, and we did public-private partnership uh, consulting around infrastructure. And once again, we were able to bring together clients who were you know, large and stable corporations, but also public sector clients. Um, probably the third company that I started uh, was a manufacturing company. And in that one, we really had to rely on individual capital to get started. And that's where we ran into trouble. Uh, My business partner had come from the business world. She comes from, uh, you know, she has access to people with wealth. I did not. And so when we had to find our startup capital, I was pretty useless. I I found a couple of people to invest, but she had to find the bulk of the investments. uh, Because often for that kind of business, when you have to use your own startup capital, you rely on friends and family. And too many women, especially women of color, do not have access to that type of uh, capital. Had I not had a business partner, we would not have been able to launch that company.
0: Um, and, and you've talked a little bit, I've heard on the trail before about access to capital. Um, Johnson's paper notes that starting a business is the second most common way for people to build wealth. Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about the role access to capital has in starting a business? These these businesses just wouldn't been possible to start without some sort of outside capital funding?
2: Right. So my very first company, and it's an important contrast, consulting businesses are usually easier to start because you're relying on your intellectual capital. You are the person who is responsible for the delivery of services, and often you can float yourself enough. Uh, to wait until you get your first invoice paid. But for most businesses that require any infrastructure, you have to have equipment, if you have to travel a great deal, if you have to hire people, if you are starting any type of sort of main street entrepreneurship usually that is not entirely reliant on your brain, you have to have someone help you. You have to have the money to buy the things you need. If you're starting a bakery, you've got to have an oven. If you are starting a childcare center, you have to have a facility and you have to have toys for the kids. All of those things require capital. And for women in particular and women of color specifically, finding that capital is hard because you typically raise money from people you know. So if you grew up like I did in a working class neighborhood with working class friends, you don't necessarily know anyone who has enough extra funds to loan them to you or to give them to you or to invest in you. Uh, And that's why there's this perpetuation, particularly around the kinds of businesses women of color can start, the kinds of businesses women can start. But women of color suffer the most because we are more likely to come from communities that do not have capital just floating around. And we are unlikely to know people who are willing to make those investments. Uh, people will tell you, well, you should look to the Small Business Administration. Their SBA loans. If you've ever filled out an SBA loan, those are very long applications, and that they require that you have a bank that's willing to lend you the money because the SBA doesn't actually give you cash. The SBA matches you with a bank, and that bank loans you the money. And after the collapse of the economy in, in 2008, the majority of the banks that were in communities that serve Low income families and in low income areas, they disappeared. And so you've had this bank consolidation that's exacerbated this larger challenge, which was that women had a hard time getting access to capital, especially if you were women of color. And now there aren't even banks to give you the capital that the federal government is willing to guarantee for you, uh, which creates this unfortunately vicious cycle where women can't start businesses because they don't have the resources. And because they don't have the resources, they can't start businesses and their communities continue to suffer. Because if a community is doing well, if you have enough small business owners, if you have entrepreneurs who can lift up the economy, then everyone tends to rise. But if no one can ever rise, everyone stays where they are, and they continue to struggle.
0: And this conversation, to me, I've been following the the economic development conversation and, and policy since we've started working on this show. And so much of that discussion always seems to revolve around the sort of narrow tax credits or, or tax preferences that individual industries or companies get in Georgia. Um, and it it's a completely different conversation than, than this one around capital. Um, do you have a critique of the way that the state has supported business development in the past?
2: I do. I think Georgia is not different than other states, and so this isn't simply a critique of Georgia. It's a critique of our economic development system. When people talk about economic development, there are typically three ways you can deliver that. One is through direct investment. A second is through tax incentives, meaning we'll give you a credit if you create this number of jobs. We will give you a credit And and we say credit, we mean you won't have to pay your income tax, your corporate tax. Uh, We'll give you um, X amount of, you know, we'll give you a deduction on the equipment you buy if you buy this kind of equipment. We will exempt your sales tax if you have to pay for this. So those are tax incentives. Uh, The third one is tax abatement. And that is going to tax off even though we know you owe. And typically those are tied to property taxes. So we say that you... If you locate here you don't have to pay the property taxes on the land that you use uh, and th- the problem with all three of these is that they prioritize and give primacy to larger entities that want to start they give primacy to communities that are ready to accept this they are typically very poorly monitored and so you get the credit on the on your self reporting about the number of jobs you've created and the amount that you put in, but if you created a handful of jobs that pay you know, $30,000 a year, but everyone who works for you is now relying on social welfare to make up the difference, the state is paying you for not paying your workers. And and that's not true in every business, but it's true often enough that we should be much more skeptical about the utility of these programs. Some of them work, but a lot of them don't, and we do not hold them to a sufficient amount of accountability. The contrast is that 44% of private sector jobs come from small businesses. Not these massive corporations that come in and promise 500 jobs on Thursday, but a small business that might have 5, 10, 50, 500 employees, let's say. And that's that's the high end of small business. I actually I disagree with that notion of a small business, but Usually when when the average person thinks about small business, you're talking about 100 to 250 employees max. Um, 500 is the number that can be used sometimes. The reason that's important is that Georgia is known as one of the best places for the massive corporation relocation, the site selection magazine that says Georgia's the number one place to do business. But we're number 22 out of the top 25 states for Main Street entrepreneurship. For those small businesses that are getting started by Carol, who decides that she has been a nurse for a long time and wants to start a home healthcare business, or uh, Daphne, who realizes that she is a fantastic chef and wants to start her own restaurant. Their ability to access capital is very different because there are no programs that are specifically targeted to their investment. And the reality is we have the, we have access to the capital the state of georgia has the cash but we prioritize and give primacy to sort of the the big win when you can announce a big number and we ignore the fact that if you do 500 individual investments of 15,000, 25,000, 50,000, 150,000 it's probably going to cost less than the tax abatement and the long-term harm to the community but actually have a longer-term return on investment especially if we're in those communities that don't typically See their businesses grow. The last number I'll use, that was in uh, Melissa's report, I think, a typical household headed by a single white woman has about $55,000. For an Asian American woman, it's about 30000 For an Hispanic woman, it's 2900 so $2,950. And for a black woman, it's $2,100. The transformative effect of being able to access capital, start a business, and build that business means you're not just changing the life of that woman. You're changing the life of the entire community because most people and small businesses hire locally. They spend locally. They grow locally, which means you are anchoring a community and building a microeconomy that can actually transform the economics of an entire neighborhood in an entire city, if we do it properly.
0: If if you were to become governor, what, what kinds of policies do you have in mind that would address these issues and, and support small businesses in Georgia?
2: One, it would be capital access. There are a number of federal programs that currently offer support. And I, I talked about the SBA loans, small business administration loans. Uh, you have capital access programs. You have loan guarantee programs there are a range of things you can do but you have to have the financial institutions ready to provide access to those dollars because what a guarantee does is say the government says to the bank if you loan this money we'll back you up so if there is a default if there is a failure we'll cover your loss but right now we don't have financial institutions located in the that either the lender doesn't want to participate because they don't see the value or the small business owner finds them so complicated and the requirements are so onerous as to make no difference. So one would be simplifying and strategically locating these dollars in credit unions, in uh, CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions, finding non-traditional ways to push capital out. Number two, it's about the fact that we also have to invest in those businesses directly through the state. Uh, we hear a lot of conversation about putting aside contracts and having contracting goals, but a larger part of that conversation is making certain that we are thinking about how we target across industries, that when we identify an industry that we think is important, we're low, So we're looking for... Um, communities that are not traditionally seen as the communities for these jobs and we're incentivizing their participation. Uh, And then the last thing is the conversation of capital. If a woman can't take off time, if a family doesn't have, if you don't have housing, it's thinking about what are the other pieces in the community that also help you build wealth and build access to that capital. Uh, But for me, the, the small business side of it is to really focus on bringing people into jobs that they don't normally see themselves in. Uh, the last thing I'll say is I, you know, I introduced a program a few weeks ago, our Advanced Energy Jobs Plan. And that plan talks about taking advantage of the fact that in Georgia, you can do hydro, wind, solar, and biomass. And we're one of not very many states that have all four of the top renewables available. We should be thinking about pink jobs. And the term pink jobs refers to encouraging women participate in those industries. Uh, We can do that by making sure we provide access to the startup capital, create a green bank that is intentionally loaning to women to do this work, and particularly to women in non-traditional and often marginalized communities. So we're encouraging them to, to participate as well.
0: And as we wrap up here, is there anything else that you wanted to add? I think the last
2: thing I'll say is this. We have to be bold and visionary about this issue because Georgia is in trouble when it comes to the economies of our small communities, of our rural communities, of our communities of color. Uh, Women are everywhere. And if we leverage women, if we invest in women, if we invest in their ideas, if we invest in their businesses, we can transform what they do. I talked about three companies that I started, uh, but the fourth company I started was actually after my third company failed for lack of capital. Uh, we had a manufacturing company, got a great order from a major food supplier who wanted to buy a truckload of our product, and we could not afford to automate the equipment. And so for lack of, you know, let's say, $75,000 on an invoice that was worth twice that much, we had to shut down our company because no one would loan us the money because we were too women in manufacturing, because we couldn't write a personal check, because we were too risky to guarantee. And even though we had proof that someone was going to pay us for our service, we could not get a bank to give us the money. Uh, and we went to, we started with banks, we went to credit unions, we went to factoring companies, and finally we were just squeezed out of the market and we had to shut down our company. But other and a third partner, and we launched a fourth company. And that company is called NowCorp. Uh, our product is Now Account, And what we do is we provide access to capital to small businesses. Uh, and, you know, the parlance of today, we're a fintech company, financial technology company. What we have been able to do with our company is move capital into small businesses, especially women-owned businesses. Uh, one of our clients quadrupled the size of her staff and has had multi-year, million-dollar years now because she was able to sell you know, her services, get a contract, get the cash of that contract, so get a cash solution that was essentially the equivalent of taking a credit card for payment. But she got her money quickly and was able to use that to pay staff to buy equipment and to do the work of her job, of her business. Uh, over the last five years, our company has created helped create or retain thousands of jobs. And we've moved hundreds of millions of dollars in capital to small businesses. That's just one example of the transformative effect of getting capital access to women. I know it personally because I couldn't get it when I needed it. And for me, this is a mission. Uh, Taking my business acumen, taking my personal experience and bringing it to the people of Georgia so we can help lift up other communities and help women and men, finds you know, the financial freedom that they can by the owners of their own destiny.
0: Well, thank you. That was all really helpful in understanding this issue of capital. Um, so Leader Abrams, thank you so much for joining the show.
2: Happy to help. Also. Thank you for having me.
0: That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.